So, hey, Kara. Hey, Chris. How you doing? These pretzels are making me thirsty. That's how I'm doing. Stop eating pretzels and be like me eating a clementine. It was a Seinfeld reference. <laughs> Which I totally didn't get. I'm sorry. I've okay. watched like Seinfeld. Maybe half of the episodes that exist out there. All right. Somebody out there will understand my reference and be like, huh. It's the extent of my people get it. <laughs> it's the extent of my cleverness today. So welcome to the Sausage of Science. I am Chris. And I am Kara. Eating a cutie. I am eating a cutie. It was from our, our department holiday party. Right on. Which I should also show you. I took it off because it was uncomfortable. I wore this amazing sweater too. So you can't see it, but she has a sweater that says Don't get your tinsel in a tangle. With a cat. And there are poof tins- balls on the arm. Yeah. Do your cats eat tinsel? I used to have to pull tinsel hanging out of the butthole of my cats. <laughs> so we usually don't let it get that far. Usually we end up pulling like a foot of it out of the throat. <laughs> be a, there'd be a... And like they're so mad at you. Like I wanted uh-huh. to eat that tinsel. Why would you remove it from my mouth? Uh-huh. And just like, cat, you have a death wish. Yep. Anyway, that laughter you heard is our guest today. We have Sarah Young from Northwestern University joining us today on the line. Hey, Sarah. Hey, how exciting to be here. Do you have any interesting tinsel cat-related stories you would like to share? Well, I think, I think our interview with her is all about eating non-traditional food stuff, so... Yeah, I guess we had a segue to this without realizing we had a segue to this, huh? But you can answer that question. you have any cat? <laughs> well, you're halfway right. Yes, I have pulled tinsel out of both ends of my cats. <laughs> and also, to your point, yes, Haika is about the consumption of non-food items, but an important caveat, it's the craving and subsequent consumption of them. Mm. So, Can you give us any insight into why cats eat tinsel? <laughs> that is what a is it? Grade. <laughs> so I, I want to share with you the titles of two of several papers I read. The two most recent ones that we'll talk about. Sarah is not the first author on, but they are straight up in her wheelhouse. So one that was uh, published this year in American Journal of Human Biology, first author is Joshua Miller with several co-authors. Shailene, is that it? Mm-hmm. Shailene uh, Collins. I should let you say all the names so I don't butcher them. <laughs> Mashud Omotayo? Um, I'm enjoying your pronunciation, so I'll let you go. I don't a- know that they will. <laughs> Stephanie Martin. A.K.A. Lonre. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Catherine Dickin. A.K.A. Kate Dickin. All right. And I'm assuming S-E-R-A is Sarah. That's right, yeah. And we had the pleasure of sitting with each other, and Kara was on the other side. I don't know if she met you at the HBA luncheon a few years ago, so I was pretty sure that I had it right from previous exposure. But the title of this paper is Geophagic Earths Consumed by Women in Western Kenya Contain Dangerous Levels of Lead, Arsenic, and Iron. And the other piece that looks like it's just come out in American Journal of Physical Anthropology with Paula Pebsworth as first author, Michael Huffman, Joanna Lambert. Any AKAs there? No. Called Geophagy Among Non-Human Primates, not cats. A systematic... (laughs) Sorry, that wasn't in the title, but it should be. A systematic review of current knowledge and suggestions for future directions. So I'll start how we always start. 
let's just start with how you got into this wonderful trade that you're in. Tell us your anthropology origin story. How'd you get interested in anthro and why did you decide to pursue it as a career? Yeah, well, I'm glad that you asked that question to everyone. It's really interesting to hear the answers. And I also just want to thank you guys for making this podcast because we don't know enough about the behind the scenes stuff of academia, both of like our decisions about what to study and, and how we do what we do. So um, thanks for the behind the curtain peek, all of these podcasts. It's truly really our pleasure. It really does. It is a lot of fun for us. So it doesn't feel like a job or effort. <laughs> well, let me ask this question on air. How much is edited? Generally, well, no, but I mean, we try to keep them listenable, like around 30 minutes. Okay. And then all the us, digressions that are meaningless, my bad jokes. <laughs> Except the Seinfeld one, obviously. And anything that you find later that you're like, I shouldn't have said that on air. Please edit that out. Mm-hmm. Okay. By the way, that awards lunch that we sat together during was really fun, Chris. And Josh Miller, author of Geophagic Arts Consumed in Western Kenya, was winning the undergraduate prize that the HBA gives for his work on PICA. So That's that cool. Fun. I remember one of your students had won an award, but I couldn't remember the name. So thank you for getting that on tape. Okay. okay so me and Anthropology origin story. I was a fairly naive, even very naive, Midwestern kid growing up in Michigan. And I ended up through, you know- All the- roads lead to Michigan. Sorry, we had this- So true. <laughs> went also, to Michigan. I'm gonna interject, what part of Michigan? So the thumb, I'm from Port Huron, Michigan. I'm from down here, Monroe County. Oh, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Irons is also from Port Huron, Michigan. Oh, I have poor her on stories as well, but they have nothing to do with anthropology. So we'll save those. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so I'm from Port Huron, Michigan, which is coincidentally where Bill Irons is from. I was a very kind of mediocre mid- Midwesterner who didn't know about the world. And then I found myself going to this amazing international school in Wales. It's called Atlantic College or United World College of the Atlantic. It's a school where the International Baccalaureate program was developed. Huh. And I was there with kids of all walks of life. So I was like 15 or 16 and we were there for two years. And, you know, the Dutch prince went, the now king went there, but also, you know, former soldiers from Eastern Europe were there with you know, the Hungarian chess champion, and then mediocre me who didn't know Israel and Palestine were really in conflict, I'm embarrassed to say. So I came back from those two years, like ready to know about the world and thinking we're all similar and we're all different. And how is it that the world is as it is? And it turns out there's a discipline that studies it, and that's anthropology. So I went for it. I, I majored in the anthropology of religion, in fact, as an undergrad at the University of Michigan. University of Michigan difference, man. It's going to be, so yesterday we had a Michigan alum for grad school, and then tomorrow Robin Nelson is also a University of Michigan alum, and I went there for undergrad. Awesome. Yeah, so my undergraduate time at the University of Michigan was really informative because I had my first field experience there, too. I went with Beverly Strassman to Hmm. Mali and helped for a summer of field work. Uh, Betsy Abrams and I were together for that summer. And that is a summer I will never forget for my life. So Betsy and I are like field sisters after all of the experiences we had there. And I learned a lot about the world. I learned a lot about science and I learned a lot about what good mentoring is and isn't from that summer. After that experience, what made you want to pursue anthropology as a career? 
Well, so I was studying anthropology of religion. I was really interested in religious conversion as a strategy for sort of having a better life and what that meant. And I was thinking of some of the more esoteric sides of religion. And, you know, the Dogen religion is, is really quite famous. So think more of the esoteric sides. And then I started to think more on like what religion, what resources religion could help one to get. But then I was spending the summer measuring 1,000 diaperless kits. And you see all kinds of social dynamics and all kinds of health problems. And I became really amazed. I mean, I'm still naive at this point, like amazed by all of the health problems faced in many places, but in this particular place. And I have become in my career more and more biomedical every step of the way. So I went on to do a a master's in medical anthropology at the University of Amsterdam. And then to my surprise, I did uh, a PhD in nutrition. You could say nutritional anthropology at Cornell University. And I didn't know that, (laughs) I'm letting the world know my naivety. I didn't know nutrition was a department. I had done an ethnography of maternal anemia and and there was a professor at Cornell, Rebecca Stoltzfus, who said, oh, would you like to do your PhD in nutrition? Like I said, I didn't know that was a department, but fortunately enough for me, Gretel Pelto was in that department and um, she became my primary advisor and really taught me almost everything I know about nutritional anthropology. So then how did you go from nutrition, which is, you know, a broad topic and you could choose any number of things within it to specifically geophagy? Yeah. And pica. Back to my... And pica. Thank you, Chris. (laughs) That goes back to my master's degree. So I was doing maternal anemia, studying like how people understood what anemia was, what they understood the causes and the consequences were. And that was in Zanzibar. I spoke very fluently at that time, Swahili. I'd lived with a Swahili family for six or seven months. And so I was working in Zanzibar, in Pemba in particular, so a less visited island in the archipelago. And I was saying to this woman, Mama, tell me, what is it that you eat when you're pregnant? And she said, well, every day, twice a day, I take earth from the wall and I eat it. And that conversation was in Swahili, and I turned to my research assistant and I said, like, hmm, what did she say what I think she said? And she said, yes, she did. And it was like a moment. You know, some, sometimes things happen and you like, you can remember how the sun was falling. You can remember how the woman was sitting. It was like a thing. Hmm. The focus of my master's thesis was anemia. I didn't explore this fully, but it was on my mind. And when it came time to think about what I wanted to do my PhD on, I had so many unanswered questions about it. So can you just, for those listening who haven't already had the pleasure, tell us what pica is. So pica, it's spelled P-I-C-A. It comes from the magpie, which is a bird thought to have an indiscriminate appetite. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, a physician said, oh, these women with these cravings for things that aren't food are just like the magpie. They both have indiscriminate appetites. Like a pika, the magpie. As it turns out, magpies don't have indiscriminate appetites. They're building their nests with these shiny, sparkly things like tinsel, probably. And humans also have very particular cravings for this stuff. They, there are a very small number of people with schizophrenia or obsessive compulsive disorder who are eating maybe you could say anything or very dangerous stuff but that population i set aside in my research and i work with people who are what is mentally healthy that's a question for debate but without obvious mental morbidities and the cravings that they have are for very particular types of earth or very particular types of starches or very particular types of even ice really particular. I'll just say particular one more time. 
<laughs> Pika is this umbrella term for all of these cravings. And then there are kind of manifestations of so geophagy, geo, earth, amyloid, starch. And then the third kind of hallmark type is pagophagy or pegophagy, which is ice cravings. Hmm. So one thing I'd like to ask, and this might be getting into like the really fine details, but you said they like a very particular, we'll use the word again, type of earth. How was that identified? Mm-hmm. I go out, I see different kinds of dirt. I could not tell you one from the other or if they were different. Um, yeah. So how do people actually go about identifying the earth that fulfills the craving they have or whatever micronutrient they're lacking? Yeah. So smell, that's the big one. And so especially people who are trying to stop their craving say like, you know, I have to close the windows when it rains so that I don't smell the delicious aroma. Or people, when they're not used to like their normal source, they will kind of moisten the earth to say like, oh, this is the good stuff or this isn't the good stuff. Have you picked up that skill in your work? Can you now tell the difference? You know, I went as far as to get pregnant twice and have two babies just to see if I would get get that skill. (laughs) That's some serious dedication to environmental anthropology. (laughs) NSF should be paying for my children's well-being, I swear, but they're not. (laughs) Um, So no, I mean, I've eaten all kinds of these things. I mean, participant observation. Come on, people. Yeah, that was my question for you. We just talked to Julie Lesnick about entomophagy, and she said it took her a while, and she finally realized she needed to try these things. So what was your experience like? When that woman turned to me in that very first day, I tasted it. I mean, and I've tasted almost every other one since. I've never had the craving for it. But I can say that knowing that it has medicinal properties, I was, you know, in grad school and you have zero dollars. And of course you would like sleep on a greasy piece of cardboard at the airport in Dar es Salaam because who has $30 for a hotel room? Yeah, so that was me. But I treated myself to a piece of pizza in the airport restaurant chicken pizza, I will add, that made me sicker than a dog. I mean, I was just so everything GI, but I was like, Aha! and I have my samples with me. So I broke into them and I ate a lot of clay that night and it definitely helped me feel better on my hobo greasy carpet airport hotel. <laughs> That's a really interesting story though, that, I mean, you went for it and that it was super beneficial in the end. Yeah, I was desperate and, you know, it worked. So I find this fascinating that uh, you describe the cravings as similar to drug cravings, right? This is a strong ass craving. Yeah. So one, who is having these cravings? And two, I didn't quite make it all the way through the non-human primate paper. Admittedly, I was reading it right before. Do we see or have any way to tell if non-human primates have similar cravings or on the same scale? Well, let me answer the first question about who has these cravings in the human population first. So the strength of the cravings is something that is worth commenting on. So like in Swahili, people say, like, I have vileo for, for earth, for example. But you can also have vileo for alcohol or recreational drugs. It's like a, a substance that you're deeply addicted to. And people talk about it, like I need my fix, or I've been using for so many years. So that's a commonality. The people who have these cravings, the hallmark craving is a person is a pregnant woman. So in a lot of places, if you see a woman eating earth, that's kind of like, uh-huh, 
she's pregnant it's like a one-to-one mm. one relationship that's not the only population so i mean there are a lot of clinical studies where people with celiac disease people with anemia people on dialysis so these different biomedical conditions but then outside of diagnoses you also see so the pregnant women outside of clinical study little kids so Mm. I'm not talking about toddlers where their mouth is their, their CPU and, you know, everything just goes in the mouth. That wouldn't be pica, right? Because they're not craving. They're just learning. Mm-hmm. But school children, there's a lot of reports of school children dealing chalk from, like, the teacher's boards to eat it, and, and uh, especially termites. So could you, for our audience especially, it seems like one of the common nutrients that people need or get from geophagy is iron. What are some of the other common ones that people are consuming so that they can get these various nutrients? Well, let's talk about the hypotheses about why geophagy happens. And the one that you're talking about is that it's like Mother Nature's supplement, like a vitamin from, mm-hmm. from Mother Nature, is definitely the most commonly held one. And it's definitely intuitive. Makes sense. Like, oh, it's not in your whatever was in your bowl. So go out to the world to get it. That said, we've done a lot of experiments on looking at the bioavailability. So is that iron absorbable by your body and it turns out it it doesn't seem like it is so on the cover of my book craving earth you see a picture of a hand holding earth and you can see little red flecks on it red is pretty indicative of iron which would suggest that like oh if you can see iron certainly there is a lot of iron but we did a lot of in vitro work where it seems that people aren't being able to get it and in fact i mean think about a mud mask you know it's it absorbs all of the toxins and draws all the impurities from your skin it's like a mud mask but for your gut and so if you eat an iron-rich steak or, or an iron-rich bean dish, what we're seeing is that some of these clays, not all, but some of them can absorb the iron that's even in the food you eat. So even though it's intuitive, there's less support for that. Hmm. The second hypothesis is that it's not adaptive. And that's probably, we call that the first hypothesis. I mean, people have been saying like, Ugh, it's women who are doing this. Certainly they know not what they do. <laughs> They're hysterical. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's pregnant women, Lord knows they know not what they do. Or it's brown people, it's like, you know, the savages. Was, there are many, many, many armchair anthropologists writing about what the natives are doing. I mean, if white men had been doing this more, I would say we would understand the etiology of geophagy and pica. I would be irrelevant to this conversation. <laughs> The non-adaptive hypothesis, the supplementation hypothesis, and then the third, which is really counterintuitive, is that it's protective. So dirt is something you're supposed to get rid of, right? You, you, know, you sweep it, you wash it, you don't play in it, and you certainly don't eat it. But as it turns out, this earth is often clay-rich, and clay has amazing properties in that it can bind with harmful chemicals in your diet or pathogens, well, like viruses and bacteria. So to go back to the animals then, are they having the same types of cravings and the same impacts? Cravings is not something I have ever tried to evaluate in animals that can't speak. But we can look at the risks that animals take in order to get this clay. So Jamie Gillardi has done, that's G-I-L-A-R-D-I, has studied um, geophagy parrots. And parrots are in their safe space when they're in the canopy. But they're very happy to descend out to like these very exposed cliffs, for example, in order to get that clay where they're much more susceptible to predators. There's a number of examples in non-human primates as well where they'll come out of the forest and be very open to predators in order to get this clay. 
I guess that kind of brings up another question that Chris had sent you is that some of the soil is being sold in markets, which sounds kind of, you know, crazy to some degree, like it's dirt. Can't you just go pick up the dirt for free? <laughs> so maybe you could walk us through why this soil is being sold in markets. How is it actually being marketed? Why people might go pay for it rather than go find it on their own? Yeah, soils are being sold in markets because people are willing to pay for it. I mean, that's the... <laughs> answer but why are they willing (laughs) and i think it's worth saying that maybe you think that they're sold at markets like open air markets you know kind of rural everything is being sold that's true it's being sold next to the tomatoes like you know in piles in rural east africa but i was actually in a grocery store in i think it was kusumu buying um black peppercorn they have really excellent peppercorns to bring as a present home to my husband and there were lovely bags, like plastic bags, packaged under the label Yankee Doodle, where it was like little packages of clay. So it's also sold in a very like kind of refined way. And that's East Africa. You can go to, I can't remember the exact website, but if you, you I know you can find it on Amazon, where they will sell you clay sent discreetly to your house. And so here in the United States, you can also buy it. In fact, there's a, a documentary called Eat White Dirt. And it's all about geophagy in the South here. Now, I buy dirt all the time at Mm -hmm. Lowe's and Home Depot for gardening. And it comes in a variety of lovely odoriferous flavors. But it sounds like they're selling it specifically for geophagy, or are they actually marketing it? Are they just sort of, it's just sort of out there for whatever you want? This is America, so everything is litigious, right? So I think the phrasing around, I've seen a lot of different ways of saying like, we're not responsible if you die from eating this or are sick from eating this. But they say like grandma's delicious white clay or for medicinal purposes or there's some language that, you know, they're not culpable if something happens, but clearly this is for eating. So a follow-up, you're suggesting I could send some student researchers out there and we could do a geophagy study here in the South? You would delight me if you did that. Oh, my God. Show them the documentary. Yeah, absolutely. I'm adding it to my human variation syllabus right now. Yeah. (laughs) Tap, tap, tap. (laughs) Seriously, that's fascinating. And I love projects like that. I was talking with a reporter at the BBC who was saying, like, oh, where can I get this? I said, I'm sure if you go to any, what they're called ethnic shop in London. And sure enough, half an hour later, she had some. You just have to know to ask. And people don't talk about it. It's not something that is just brought up. So is it not brought up because of kind of typical human disgust reactions? Or is there a shame that's involved here? What's What do you think the driving force is behind that? I think there's a lot to it. On on one hand, people just don't know to ask. So in nutrition, we do dietary recalls. We say, like, how often did you eat X, Y, and Z in the last day or week or whatever the recall period is? We don't often think to ask about Earth. So sometimes it's just forgotten. Mm. out of ignorance um there is also a lot of stigma around it people get really upset like taxi drivers and when i tell them that's what i study like why would anyone put that into their mouth that's disgusting there's also fear of biomedical reprisal is maybe too strong of a word but one of the most offensive things is when a study coordinator said to me oh yeah sarah even if i did this i wouldn't tell you because you would have problems and i'm like Dang, Joy, we've been working together for years now, and we're asking ladies in the study if they have these cravings. So we talked about the functional or adaptive aspects, but this paper is about other metals. 
that you found in them. So are there some negative biological implications associated with eating? Yeah, and we are not at the point in our understanding of geophagy to say that there's caveat-free, it's good for you, or caveat-free, it's bad for you. And there's clearly some items that are super risky to eat, like lead paint chips or battery that's glazed with lead. Those are scary and dangerous. And as you saw in this article in the 2018 piece, there's really high levels of both lead and arsenic in these samples that women are eating in, in Kakamega. These were collected both at women's houses, but also bought in the market. And what we find is not even like a little bit of lead, like a lot of lead. Wow. And this is one of the things that can be risky about geophagy. So you can totally wear out your teeth. I mean, that's a big concern. And if you eat enough earth, you can have impaction in the intestines. So like, you know, we're literally nothing will, will move through anymore. Fun stuff. One more question. You're doing a lot more than pica in geophagy, right? So your research is in food insecurity as well, which now that I understand better, seems like a natural extension. Every single paper, you're one of many, many authors. So you have a lot of collaborations going on. So can you tell us about these projects and, and how they fit together? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say like the overarching theme of my research is, is maternal and child health and how these vulnerable populations adapt to adverse circumstances. So you know, my first love, pica, it was how do you adapt to anemia? And even more, I mean, looks like pica isn't a very efficacious adaptation to pica, but that's how I fell in love with pica. I moved from there to how women were feeding their infants in the context of HIV. So what are the best and safest ways of feeding an infant when you yourself are HIV infected and your breast milk can be a vector? And from there, I'm just, you know, dang it, I became a mom myself. And I realized how hard, I can remember writing this review of the importance of exclusive breastfeeding while baby Stella is like in her rocker next to me going like, wait, mama, feed me, feed me. Like, don't you know I'm writing an article about the importance of exclusive breastfeeding? The irony. And I started to realize just how, how many resources go into being a mom or a parent and Thinking more broadly about food insecurity led me then to water insecurity. And that's really what I spend all of my time on. As it turns out, we know from a lot of great anthropologists like Amber Wutich, Craig Hadley, Jed Stevenson, people have been doing great stuff with understanding how water insecurity impacts mental health, physical health, social fabric. It's great. Those people have been pioneering at like quantifying household water insecurity. But we have this measure of household food insecurity, these nine questions that work supposedly very well in Atlanta or Kenya or Pakistan. The same nine items sort of we can quantify it. We don't have that for water insecurity currently, or we didn't. So for the last couple of years, I've been working with a lot, a lot of collaborators to develop these magic items, nine, well, we're at 12 items that can measure water insecurity in an equivalent way across uh, low and middle income countries. And that all goes back to these pictures that women showed me in Kenya when I asked mama, take pictures of what influences how you feed your infants. And I got back all these pictures of water, which is not something I had expected. So you've worked with several of our other interviewees, Asher Rossinger. Um, uh, I think you work with Alex and Amber. Yeah, yes, well, all of those people. They, and probably, and awesome. They've really brought me into the HBA fold. Hmm. Nice, nice, nice. 
All right. So to wrap up, we also, we like to start with a certain question. We like to end with a certain question. So what is it that you do for fun? Or what are you reading, watching, or listening to that's non-academic that you're enjoying right now? You know, Northwestern recently interviewed me about my work on food and water insecurity. It's like, what's your advice to a young anthropologist? And, you know, I said you ought to be having fun. If your work isn't fun, like you shouldn't be doing it. Which isn't to say that I don't have fun doing other things than my work. But I try to really pick work and collaborators who are fun. Because life is too short to work with a bunch of dicks. <laughs> so true. Hallelujah. Uh, yeah. So I try to have fun. My group, we have fun. We had a white elephant party at our house. My husband is also a professor of engineering. We had a white elephant party with our groups this this weekend. It was good, good fun. But also, I am loving me some Beyonce. That is for sure. Girls and I are dancing to Beyonce and husband too. Good times. Danced around the house. We've been taking our, we have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. We've been giving them like a tour to 1980s movies. So like watching Goonies, watching um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Romancing the Stone. Was a, I love that movie. It's love such it. a good movie. <laughs> well, good quotes. <laughs> I mean, one of the sites for our HY studies in Cartagena, and it just gave like, uh, Justin Stoller, geographer, is leading that work. He's amazing too. It was just like, Cartagena, how I think of it for as a household water and security experiences field site in Cartagena of a large emerald. (laughs) (laughs) Love that movie. That movie is my childhood. So I totally, I I love that this this is what you're exposing your children to. I think that's fantastic. So that's fun. Are you taking them through things like the dark crystal? Oh yes. Also for sure. For Mm -hmm. sure. The labyrinth I'm always hit or miss. Apparently Right after I was born, my parents showed my, my brother, who was four years older than me, the labyrinth. And he didn't sleep for a week because he thought that David Bowie was going to come steal me. Nice. Well, guys, thank you for having me. Sarah, if anyone wants to get in touch with you about your work, how do they do that? Twitter? Well, I have, yes, I have been forced into Twitter by Wendy Jepson and Amber Wittich. I thank am you. at prop Sarah Young, S-E-R-A Young. My website is www.sarayoung.org, where you can see all of the work that my awesome group is doing. You can find me in the Twitterverse at Chris underscore L-Y. And me at Kara Akabak. We have been the Sausage of Science. Thank you, Sarah, so much again. And thank you all for listening. You should definitely subscribe to this podcast, rate it, and share it with your friends. <laughs>